So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be looking this morning. So last week I was uh, reading through uh, the Bible and I came across a chapter in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 12, where I read the term shibboleth. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that term before, shibboleth. It, it comes from uh, Judges 12 where the Gileadites, in order to know who was one of them and who wasn't one of them, people trying to enter, they would make them say the word shibboleth. And if they pronounced it wrong, like Sibboleth, then they knew that these people were foreigners and proved to not be a part of their tribe. And today we have many kind of modern, unofficial or official Shibboleths that are present in our society that distinguish the insiders from the outsiders. For example, if you take the trip down to Andrew's land, Kingston, and you walk around the campus and you see someone wearing a purple jacket, well, that is a shibboleth saying that they are an engineer and others are not. Or a more personal one, I remember uh, I'm building a house and I showed up to help my builder and I came with brand new tools and a brand new set of boots. And it was very clear that I was not a builder, that that was a a shibboleth distinguishing the true builders uh, from myself. I mention this story because in a way, though not exactly, I think what we're going to be talking about today is a sort of shibboleth for the church. See, today we're talking about our ninth and final mark of a healthy church, and that is that a healthy church practices church membership. Now, I understand that membership is or can be a bit of a, a touchy subject within the church. An understandable objection that some Christians will put forward is, you know, membership is nowhere prescribed in the Bible. You know, I don't see any lists of members given. I don't see any templates in the book of Acts for a church covenant. I don't see any command. Thou must become a church member. And so how can I then stand up here and say that church membership is a mark of a biblical and healthy church when it isn't even in the Bible. Now, I do concede that if I go to the back of my Bible and I look up the word membership, I won't find it there. And I won't find the words church membership or church covenant as I'm reading through the history of the early church in the book of Acts. But it would be wrong to think that church membership, therefore, is not taught in the Bible. You know, I don't read the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. But that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't teach the theology or concept of the Trinity. I think the same is true for membership. Membership, when defined properly, I think is taught all over the New Testament. And so I encourage you that if if you're here this morning and you're a little bit hesitant about this idea of membership being biblical, or maybe you think it's a little bit legalistic, or maybe you you just don't see it as as a big deal, what I want you to do is try and set aside what you've, you've known or experienced about membership in the past, unless it's something positive, 
and try to look at it in light of what we're going to study from God's Word today. And so this morning's sermon, then, it's going to have three parts to it. We're going to look at what is membership. Second, we're going to look at why membership matters. And then thirdly, why every Christian should be a member in a local church. And so first, what is church membership? And for this, we're going to look in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. So if you're not there already, I'll give you a quick second to turn there. Sounds like everybody's there, so I'll read God's inspired and inerrant word this morning. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not to rather are, are you not ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedier and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who, anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And before we dive into this passage, let me first give you a, a definition of what church membership is so that we're all working from the same concept here. See, that's most basic definition, church membership is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It's a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. To be a church member is for the local church to affirm before the church and the world that you are a citizen in the kingdom of God. As Jonathan Lehman says, it's, it's a declaration that you are an official, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. Or a more clunky definition, church membership is a, a formal relationship between a church and a Christian, whereby the church affirms and oversees the Christian's discipleship, and the Christian submits to and lives out his or her discipleship under the care of the local church. So in other words, it is a Christian and a church entering into an agreement with one another where both are bearing responsibilities. The church 
And by church, I mean the whole assembly of believers, not just the leaders in the church, is responsible for affirming the Christian's profession of faith and oversight to their growth as a believer. So that's the responsibility of the church. And then the Christian is responsible for committing his or herself to the care and service of the other members and the leadership of the church over them. And the reason then that we're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 5 this morning is because that's, that's really exactly what we are seeing happening here. Now let me walk, let me walk you through this uh, in, in terms of what is going on in this passage. So you have a, a man who is in the church who is practicing sexual immorality. And now this isn't some random guy that's, that's walked off the street and, and walked into the church assembly. Paul says in verse 1 that there is sexual immorality among you. Or later in verse 11 he says, Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. So Paul here, he's talking about a, a, a man who professes Christ, one who is among you, one who claims to be part of the family of God, one who claims to be representing Jesus Christ. See, but there is a problem. This man who claims citizenship in the kingdom of God is in open, blatant, serious, and unrepentant sin. And Paul says that, that this, is, this can no longer continue on. He says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now this is interesting. Because Paul here, he's making a claim that, that directly pertains to membership. He's saying that this man who is unrepentant of his sexual morality must be removed from among you. But we also know he's saying you can't be fully removed from, from those who don't claim the name of Christ but still participate in the sexual morality. So, so what Paul's Im- implying here then is that th- there are those who are considered among the Christians, and there, there are those who are not. You know, in some shape or form, there is a, a group that was identified as Christians or the church, and there was a group that was not identified as Christians or the church. And what Paul is saying is, remove this man from this recognized group of Christians and put him in the other category with those who do not know and do not represent Christ. And it's because of his lifestyle of sin, the church is saying, we no longer recognize that you are one of us. And now why is Paul telling them to do this? Well, for a few reasons that we see in our passage. First, Paul does this in hopes of of leading this man to repentance. You know, look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of of the Lord. See, Paul's calling the church to remove this man from his position as, a, as, as identified as a member of the body so that he will see the errors in his ways. Now, this term, deliver this man to Satan, is Paul saying, give him back to the world. You know, give him back to the, the realm of the flesh, the realm of Satan, where he is, where he is acting in line, of, in line with what he's acting like. You know, Paul's saying, saying, don't, don't associate with this man as one who represents Christ anymore. You know, say to him, we, we no longer recognize your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus because the fruit of your life just isn't lining up with that. 
You know, we, we now see you as we would see others in the world, under the power and control of the flesh and the ruler of the flesh, who is Satan. But keep in mind, this can only happen if the church in the first place has affirmed this man's profession of faith. You can't remove someone and give them back to the world if they've never been considered part of the in-crowd or the church in the first place. And so it implies that, that some sort of membership must have preceded the removal of this person from membership. Because that's the first reason Paul is doing it. To, 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 so this man would, would say, you know, I've sinned. I've been removed from the church of God, and I need to turn from my ways. Second, Paul does this because sin going unchecked within the church can lead to the whole church falling into sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, Jesus has purchased his bride through his very own blood. He came and he bore the very wrath of God and granted us the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. And now Paul is saying, we're not going to let someone come in and just totally ruin and defile this bride of Christ. See, the church is called to be pure and holy. So when someone strays into blatant, serious, and unrepentant sin and claims to be a representative of Christ, they're to be removed to keep the pure and holy nature of the church through exercising church discipline. And church discipline is essentially saying that with, with sad hearts, because of your unrepentant sin, we can no longer recognize you as a representative of Christ. And we hope that this leads you to repentance and restoration with God and with His church. And so that's the second reason. Paul doesn't want the holy pure bride of Christ being corrupted. And then thirdly, Paul does this to protect the name of Christ. Look at verses 11 and 13. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see, the church has a responsibility to judge within the church. Now, the question is, what, what are we judging? You know, if someone shows up late to church, is that what I'm judging? If someone, you know, uh, should have done something with raising their children a little bit better? Is that what I am judging? No, what Paul is calling them to judge here is that does the behavior of the Christian, so-called Christian, line up with their profession of faith? And in doing so, what we are doing is protecting the honor of Christ and His bride. We're saying you can't be going around saying, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, He is my Lord and my Savior, but then be engaging in this open, blatant, and unrepentant sin. 
And so it protects the, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that no one walks around slandering his name by their lives. Now, going back then to our definition of, of membership, do you remember my simple definition? Membership is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, I hope you can see that that is what, what Paul is calling the church to, to do, to revoke the recognition of this man's citizenship in Christ's kingdom. But then the question arises, at least in my head, that's a pretty big authority that God is giving there. I mean, does God actually give the church the ability to say, I don't think that you are a citizen in the kingdom of God? You know, whose responsibility is it to affirm whether someone is in Christ's kingdom? Is it, is it enough for me, an individual, to say, no, I am a Christian, and that's all that matters. I am a kingdom. I, I am part of Christ's kingdom. Or is it up to the church? Or is it simply up to, to God himself to make that declaration? You know, for example, can I say, I am a citizen of Canada, and that makes it so? Or does someone else, like the government of Canada, need to make that declaration and say, yes, Lucas is a citizen of Canada? Well, the answer to this question of, of whose responsibility is it to affirm whether someone is in Christ's kingdom, because this pertains to membership, I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 19, and then we'll flip quickly after that to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 19. He said to them, he's talking to his disciples here, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then flip now a couple pages to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 20. Again, Jesus is teaching his disciples. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so in these two passages, 
These are the only, only places in the Gospels where Jesus mentions the word church. And it forms the foundation for things like church membership and discipline that we practice today. See, in Matthew 16, we see that God gives the apostles, with Peter being the chief apostle, the authority over the church. And their authority is essentially to wield the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind or to loose. Essentially, Peter and and the apostles were given the authority to admit entrance into God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and the affirmation of the faith of those who believed in Jesus. And this is what we see throughout the book of Acts. Think of Acts 2. Peter's up there, he's preaching the gospel, and what happens? Acts 2, verse 41. Those who receive his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so Peter and the apostles, what they're doing is they're affirming the faith of those who say they believe in Jesus. They're baptizing them, and then they're adding them to the church of God. But notice the second passage there. So that's what the apostles are doing. But notice the second passage we read in Matthew chapter 18. See, Jesus moves from giving this authority to the apostles and then all of a sudden expanding it to the whole church when we are assembled together. Jesus knew the apostles would not always be around, and so he says when the apostles are gone, it's not as though there's, there's no more authority all of a sudden. The authority is given to the local church. You know, he says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's talking to the church, to those who are representative, representatives of Christ. He says the exact same words that he said to Peter. And so in other words, to, to answer that question, whose responsibility is it to affirm whether someone is in Christ's kingdom, well, Jesus gives us the answer. The answer is the church, the local church of God. The members of Christ's body have been given the authority to say, we think you belong in the body, and, or, or, or we don't think you do belong in the body. You see, the kingdom of God is a, is a landless, borderless kingdom with citizens scattered all throughout history and geography. But how then does a landless, borderless kingdom like this one mark out its citizens? How does it distinguish itself from, from, from those in the other kingdom, the kingdom of darkness? How does it distinguish itself from imposters who say, yeah, no, I, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe in Jesus, but then their life clearly does not reflect that? Well, according to Jesus and according to Paul, it's through an official recognition by the local church. Jesus gives the local church the authority to stand in front of someone who confesses Christ as their Savior, to then consider that confession, to consider his or her life, and to announce an official judgment. Is it a true confession? Does their confession and life reveal that they are truly citizens in Christ's kingdom? And we can't say, well, I don't care what the church thinks. You know, no Christian can say, I don't care what, what the other people in the church think if they think I'm a Christian or not. I know that I'm a Christian, and that is all that matters. I can affirm my own profession of faith, thank you very much. I don't need to submit to the local church. I don't need their recognition. But the problem is, 
If you do that, not only is it unbiblical, like show me in the Bible where that is the case, but you're rejecting the very institution that Christ came to establish and the one to whom he gave his keys to bind and to loose. Now, I want to be clear. The church affirms the citizenship of a believer in Christ's kingdom, but does not bestow citizenship in the kingdom of God. Only the Lord Jesus does that. Only the Lord Jesus grants salvation. The church does not have the authority to grant anyone salvation. The church, as Christ's institution, rather is affirming what Christ says to be true about a believer. Jonathan Lehman, who I quoted earlier in his book on membership, he gives a good example for us. He talks about how an embassy in a foreign country is there to affirm and support its citizens. At one time while he was in a foreign country, his passport expired, and he needed to go to the embassy to get them, not to bestow upon him citizenship, but to say, yes, this man is a citizenship, here is your new, he is a citizen, here is your new passport. See, the embassy didn't bestow citizenship, rather it affirmed that he was already a citizen. citizen. And the same is true with church membership. Church membership doesn't make you a Christian. You can be a Christian and not be in formal church membership. Though, if you are a true Christian, that should, I think, be a desire. See, we're not saved by church membership. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But membership in a local church does affirm that you're a Christian. It affirms that you are an official, licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. Now, can the church get it wrong? I mean, of course they can. Can they affirm someone who later falls away when they said, yes, we think this man is a Christian, but by falling away, he clearly shows that he was not a Christian? Yes, they can get that wrong. Can there be someone who is genuinely a Christian that the church says, you know what, we're not sure right now if you are a Christian, and they get it wrong? Yes, they can get it wrong. But, you, but, but, it, but it's, like, it's like parenting. You know, I don't always parent my children in the most ideal, best way. I try to, but I, I, I will fall short of that standard at times. Does that mean that my children can say, well, Dad, you've made mistakes, so I guess your authority is forever removed? No, children are still called to submit to their parents, and parents are called to do, do their best to be faithful to the Lord in parenting. And it's the same is true with church membership. So the church isn't always going to be perfect, but it doesn't mean their authority is revoked. And so then to summarize this first point, don't worry, this is the, the longest point by far. What is membership? Membership is identifying yourself with the institution that the Lord Jesus has established, the local church, and its submission on your part to your fellow believers And it's your fellow believers promising to oversee and affirm your profession of faith so long as the fruit in your life reflects it. And so now that we know what membership is, the question might be rising in your mind as to to why it is necessary. Okay, this is what membership, but why why is that even necessary? Why, Why does it even matter? And we talked a little bit earlier about why it matters from 1 Corinthians when Paul is dealing with this man 
We saw membership and subsequent discipline was a way of leading this man to repentance, keeping the church pure and holy as the bride of Christ, and then honoring the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's even more reasons, I think, that are biblical why church membership matters. And I'll just give you six, even though there's probably more that I'm missing. First, membership matters because it identifies you as part of the church of God. You know, anyone can say, anyone can say, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, how many people do we know in our lives that say, yeah, I'm a Christian, where when we look at the fruit of their lives, we see, really, because you're not following Christ at all. So then how do we distinguish the imposters from the true? I can say that I'm, I'm a friend of LeBron James, but that doesn't really make me his friend unless LeBron James says, no, I am a friend of Lucas. You know, it's the same with the church. We can say, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in Christ. I, I, I follow Christ. But it's, it's, the, the weight is carried when the church actually says back to you, yes, we agree with that. You do follow Christ. You do love Christ. And we are willing to affirm that. You, you represent Christ and are part of Christ's church. So that's the first reason why it matters, because it identifies you as part of the church of God. Second, membership matters because it's how you submit to the local church that Christ has established. Do you truly believe that Jesus established the local church? Do you truly believe that Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven to the local church? If you say yes to both of those, then I think joining the institution that Christ has established is essential. Becoming a member in a local church is how you submit to Christ's local church. Third, membership matters because it's how you fulfill your biblical responsibility to Christian leaders. Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. See, we as Christians are commanded to obey and submit to our leaders in the church. Well, what leaders? You know, how do I be obedient? Who do I submit to? Well, you submit to the leaders of the church that you are a member of. You don't need to go and submit to the leaders down at First Baptist or the Presbyterian church down the road or the Pentecostal church. You submit to the local body, the leaders there that you have placed yourself under the authority of. Fourth, and related to that one, membership matters because it's how Christian leaders fulfill their responsibilities to you. And we just read, leaders are keeping watch over your souls, for which we will give an account. Well, whose souls am I going to have to give an account for? It is those who are part of the local church. It's those who have placed themselves under the authority of Christ's church. Those who have entered into a covenant with the church where they submit to the oversight of the church, and the church seeks to serve and grow them on their path of discipleship. Fifthly, membership matters because it doesn't deceive anyone into thinking that they are saved. See, when you, when you don't allow someone to become a member, or when you remove someone from membership, what you're saying to them is that I can't in good conscience affirm that you are a Christian. Your life and your profession do not line up. I'm worried for your salvation. And because I love you, I can't deceive you into thinking you're a Christian. 
I can't deceive you so that on that day you, you say, well, I was a member in a church. Of course I'm getting in, into heaven. You know, membership, membership is, is really honoring those in and outside of the church. It's saying you can have assurance, not complete assurance because the church gets it wrong, gets it wrong but you can have assurance that other believers agree with you that you are a Christian. And then finally... Membership matters because it's how you commit to other believers. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, we are commanded to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and helped together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, the body made of its members builds itself up. Those who have come together, committed to one another, submitted themselves to one another, are serving one another, loving, rebuking, and encouraging one another, they have all come together and committed to do that as the body of Christ. That is how membership is how you commit to other believers. And so you see, membership does matter. You know, it is biblical, as we've seen, it is good for you as a Christian individually. It is good for the church that you're going to join, and it is good, I believe, for the collective kingdom of God. And so maybe at the beginning of the sermon, you're a little bit wary of church membership. Maybe you thought, you know, it's a little bit legalistic, or maybe you thought it's unbiblical, or maybe you thought it was unnecessary and didn't really matter, or maybe you thought that you are the one who affirms your own citizenship in the kingdom of God and his church. Well, if I haven't convinced you, in this last section, we're going to talk about why every Christian should be a member in a local church. I think I've given you multiple biblical reasons to become a member in a church, and now if you're still on the fence as to whether you should be a member, I want you to ask yourself one simple question. Can you give me one biblical reason why you shouldn't become a member. Can you give me one biblical reason why you shouldn't become a member? Can you give me one biblical reason why you shouldn't officially commit yourself to the local church that Jesus has established? Can you give me one biblical reason why you wouldn't want the church of God to affirm that you belong in the kingdom of God and are a representative of him? If you, if, you, if you did come up with a reason, please come and talk to me after because I, I can't. I can't come up with a reason. In fact, usually when I talk with someone who is, who is hesitant about membership, the reason usually boils down to not something that I think is biblical. usually boils down to something like this, though most won't come out and say it. Church membership is binding, and what I want is Flexibility. It involves submitting to an authority, and I don't want to submit to authority. You know, I can do all of the things entailed in membership without officially becoming a member. The church doesn't affirm my citizenship in the kingdom of God. I do. Well, this is a little blunt, but I say it to you in love in order to stir you on to what I think is biblical. But continually attending a church and not becoming a member in that church 
is like living in common law with Christ's bride. You want all of the benefits of marriage, but you don't want the institution of marriage. You want the security of a relationship without having to commit to that relationship. That's what it's like when we, when we won't seek membership in a church that we, we love and are wanting to attend. You know, we like the activity, but we reject the institution of it. We're living in common law with the church. Now, you might say, well, pastor, isn't it just a piece of paper? But is it, though? Is membership just a piece of paper? Now, what if I said to my wife, Hannah, I want to marry you, but we don't need to sign anything or make any formal commitment or covenant. It's just a piece of paper anyway. Well, if it's just a piece of paper, then why not go ahead and sign it? Well, because we all know that it's not just a piece of paper. Membership is a commitment, a covenant, a submission of yourself where you are giving up a level of authority on your life and giving that over to your fellow brother and sisters in Christ who form the local church of Christ. And there is, there is a sweet beauty in that. You know, there, is, there is beauty in commitment to one another. There is beauty in looking over at your fellow members and saying, we have committed to one another to build one another up, to support one another, to hold one another accountable, to love one another, to serve one another, to point one another towards the Lord Jesus Christ, to submit to one another. And if necessary, out of deep love, to even discipline one another. And there is beauty in all of that. You know, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, left his home in heaven to come to this earth. He came and, and he took on the form of a human, the form of a servant, and he humbled himself even to the point of death. He bore the transgressions of his people, and through his blood, he offers all who believe in him the forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith. And now, why did he do that? Well, he did it for a purpose, to redeem for himself a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a pure bride, a family of God, a new temple, a body, and of course, a local church. A local church whom he has given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so I invite you then, come, come and be a part of your Lord and Savior's church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, God, for the beauty and the institution of your church. Lord, that you have established